Okay, let me ask, let me just throw out and ask, um, because we are a discussion class, we'll just start with discussion. What do you know about Hebrews? Diane knows that Jesus is a main, a main theme, purpose person there. What do you know about Hebrews? Anybody? Do what? Well, you want to say that louder? <laughs> so we can hear? Okay, it really ties the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that's probably one of the things I really, really like it about it, but probably why um, Hebrews and Covenant are my two favorite um, studies because it really helps me put together God's full meta narrative, his full story of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. And I think you'll see that in studying this. Somebody else, somebody over here said something. Yes, ma'am. I have written, uh, sorry, I'm an author of a Christian, probably Greek speaking Jew and Christian Jew. Okay, okay, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. Anybody else? It was written to the Hebrews, we, but we don't know who they really are yet. We're going to talk about that in a minute, too. Did anybody read through it this summer or in the last week? Hey, we're getting ready to study Hebrews. I meant to send you an email. I had really good intentions to send an email about a week ago and say, hey, to, to all of those that I knew were coming, hey, why don't you just read through it, you know, at least one time or put it on your phone and listen, better yet, listen to it and just get a little bit familiar with it. Did anybody, any star students in here that want to star? Genevieve, did you do that? What kind of impressions? Did you get? There's a lot in it. There is a lot in it. Anybody else? You read it? It's about Jesus, right? <laughs> There you go. <laughs> we were in um, Pompeii three years ago, and this couple, everybody had the same travel book for navigating Pompeii, everybody. Everybody had Rick Steves, which is a big, big book. Uh-huh, it is. But this one young couple had just torn out the section of Pompeii and had that <laughs> because it was a little confusing. And so with total strangers, you're kind of huddling, trying to figure it out. But I think it's, you know, someone would figure something out, and we'd share it with the others. Have you been to Pompeii? Yeah, it's interesting. Okay. Anybody else? Did you read it? Impressions? Okay. Well, let's get some background. Before we go, speaking of going on a trip, before you go on a trip, you plan where you're going, right? I mean, my husband loves to plan the trips. Praise God he does, because I don't. And he will spend months reading about everything, about the hotels, the restaurants, who has the best cruise ships, what's the best rooms on the best cruise ships, what's the best placement of the best rooms on the cruise ship. He will read all the travel forums. He will do all this. He will get it all planned, exactly what we're doing every day with, with margin time. And I just say, what day are we leaving? What clothes do we need? And I show up and fall, and I just go. You know, if he thinks I'm going to have an opinion about something, he'll say, would you rather this or this, or this or this? 
And, and there are some things I will say, this is non-negotiable. Um, when we did the Mediterranean trip, I said, Sicily is non-negotiable. We will go to Sicily because those are my, my roots are Sicilian and I have the manifest of my great-grandfather coming over from Sicily. So I said, I want to see Sicily. But other than that, it was, it was open. There's similarity there in, in, a, in approaching a book of the Bible. Where are you going? You don't just pick up the first verse and start reading. Yes, you can do that. But if, and yes, you can pick it up and, and ideally read through the entire book, whatever it is you're reading. But it really helps if you can get some background information about that book before you start digging in and trying to study it. It's like putting together pieces of a puzzle. I want to get those outside edges first. What are the knowns about this letter? And what are the things I can definitely find out? What are the things I don't know? Because they're going to frame the book and help me to interpret and understand it if I know these things. So I've given you the sheet. We're going to start off with the author. There is an author. Does anybody know who the author is? We do not know. That's a trick question. The author is, we don't know. We really don't know. Some will say Paul, although most scholars totally rule him out for a lot of scholarly debated reasons. Um, some suggestions are Barnabas, Luke, Silas, Apollos. Uh, some suggest Priscilla, and that's why her name is on there, because she's a woman. Um, I kind of like that idea. <laughs> but as Origen said in the second century, only God knows who wrote this epistle. We don't know who wrote it. And even as early as the, the second century, no one knew. I believe that the people who received it knew who wrote them. But for whatever reason, it wasn't preserved down through history for us. God only knows. We do know some things about the author, because this is what's interesting. If I, all of the, all the things that I'm giving you, most of it, you could figure this out on your own by just rereading the book over and over and over. And anybody in here, anybody in here used to do the old precept classes way back when? You just, you just spent a whole week's homework doing that. And we wouldn't have given it to you. You would have had to dig it out. So thank us for doing this for you. <laughs> but you do, a couple of things we do know about the author is that he has an incredible knowledge of the Old Testament and its interpretation, that his mind was absolutely saturated with God's word. He knows the Old Testament forwards and backwards. There's numerous um, quotations from the Old Testament. There's like 35 quotations, 34 allusions to certain verses. So he knows it well. He is highly educated. And we know that he is highly educated because the Greek and the Greek structure of the letter tells us that this is someone who had a really solid education in the Greek language. It is like one of, it's one, ranks as one of the top New Testament um, books in the handling of the Greek language. So we know that about him. Um, and we also know he was very committed to Jesus and that he was very concerned about the spiritual state of these people to whom he wrote. Okay. The recipients. We had a couple of things said over here. 
about who are the recipients. What was said earlier? What do we know about them? They apparently were Jewish because in that first part it says that they had a rich background in, in the Old Testament. The author had this rich background in the Old Testament. He quotes it. He refers to it. In fact, um, there are Old Testament quotations. They permeate every single chapter of the book of Hebrews. So he assumed they knew it as well. So they had to have known it. And who would know that most would probably be someone brought up in the Jewish faith. Now, that does, not, that does not eliminate the fact that there might be Gentile God-fearers within the congregation. But most of the scholars believe it was primarily Jewish Christians with a small amount of Gentile God-fearers in there, especially when we start getting into the warnings and what they were in danger. It makes more sense that they were Jews, not Gentiles. Okay, so they were primarily Jewish Christians. They had been Christians long enough that they should have matured because he says over at the end of 5 and into the beginning of chapter 6 that they had had time to grow and to not be babes drinking milk, but instead you are babes still in need of milk and need again to be taught the elementary principles. So we know that about them. We also know that they were experiencing persecution. And we see that. In fact, let's just turn there into chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. starting in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that you, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So you see the, the level of persecution that they had. Some have been thrown in prison. Some have had their property taken away from them. But they are experiencing a difficult life and a life of persecution because they are followers of Christ. And that's hard. That's, that's really, really hard. And it, it, you can see where they may grow discouraged in this because we know from the exhortations and the things that the author says that they were also in danger of falling away. They were in danger of um, turning back, turning away from Christ, turning away from Christianity and going back to Judaism to escape the persecution. And this author is saying, no, no, there's nothing to go back to. There is no one to go back to. You are in need of perseverance and endurance through this. Because what you think would be going back doesn't really even exist anymore. Yes, sir. Do we know if this persecution was coming from uh, 
I think it was coming, it was coming more from the outside, wasn't it? You think it's coming from within the Jewish community, not just in general as well? But if we go look at when that was written, that's what tells me that it's coming from both. Well, I think there might be both. But like, for example, if you look in the book of Revelation, um, mm -hmm. it is underestimated now from a lot of scholars on how much of the persecution is coming from the Jewish community as well. I mean, you think of Revelation, you think of the Roman Empire, but then why do the letters talk about the synagogues of Satan and those who claim to yeah, be right. or not? Right. Well, here, let's go to the date. Skip over to the date. This is why I think this is why I think it's both, and you can tell me what, what you think. We don't really, again, there's so much we don't know. We don't know exactly when it was written. We know it was written um, within the first century because Clement refers to it in 95 AD and quotes from it. Um, we most people think it was written around the mid-60s before the destruction of the temple. The author doesn't mention the temple. He talks about the tabernacle, but feels, most people feel strongly that if the temple had been destroyed, there would have been mention of it. But even if it had, if it was after that, it still would have been somewhere right around, what, 64, 65 into the early 70s, somewhere in there that this letter was written. It was in 46 that Claudius expelled the, the Jews from Rome. So there was that persecution of Jews, and then it was um, in 64-ish that Nero began to persecute the Christians. So it kind of looks like persecution from all fronts. It's coming from the, the Jews. Well, and it's in that, as far as the recipients go, we don't know where they were. So, because he doesn't say, it's not like other letters where it says to the church at, 
Ephesus or the, you know, at Colossae, so we don't know where these Hebrews were. Where, where do you think they were? A lot of people say Rome. I don't know that you can really tell. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of unknowns. Don't know who wrote them. Wrote it. Don't really know who these people were. Not really positive where they were. But we do have lots of knowns. Lots of knowns. Okay. The genre. Do y'all know what genre is? Genre is what type of literature is it? What is the genre? What is this? Okay, okay. It, it, it is a letter, but it doesn't read like a letter. Why doesn't it read like a letter? Yeah, it doesn't open up in the beginning. Paul and Timothy to, you know, to who he's talking to. Because if you go to any of the New Testament epistles, if you just start flipping through it, always the author identifies himself. That was the way a letter was written back then. We write a letter, you know, dear, dear Jackie, and then at the end, you know, sincerely Nancy. They put who, the, who it was, was writing, and to whom in the very first tagline. They're, they're, that does not exist at all. In fact, it just starts in with a lot of um, teaching. It starts in like a sermon is what it is. So the author, and the author describes it. Look at that second line in there. The, it is a letter. It is an epistle. It's one of the general epistles. But the author describes it as, if you go to 1325, he says it's a word of exhortation. In fact, he even says, I've written briefly, 13 chapters doesn't seem brief to me, I've written briefly this word of exhortation to you. And what is a word of exhortation? Is more of a sermon or a homily. So I, I like what one person said. It is a sermon delivered in the form of a letter that was to be read over and over again. And that is how it would have been received and how they would have heard it. Those of you all that have been in these classes where we've done some of the shorter epistles, Jim has stood up here and read the entire epistle to you to get a feel for how the early people, the original recipients would have received it. I would encourage you to get on your smartphone on, on the YouVersion app and, you know, if you've got, like, you're driving to the city one day or doing something, listen to it. Let, let that little voice, whoever that voice is, um, just read you the, the book of Hebrews and, and experience it that way. It's a completely different experience over reading it. Okay. One thing I forgot to put is um, there are five warnings in this, we will be looking at three of them this semester. They are what make the book very difficult because they're hard, they're hard to interpret and people will disagree on their interpretation. And if you look at, if you also think, another thing I forgot to put is purpose, his purpose in writing. Just like we said, they're experiencing persecution Life has gotten hard, they're discouraged, and the temptation to go back to what they had once before for relief requires that the author write and say, give them first some good exposition and truth about let's relook at who Jesus is and what he has done for you 
and how he has, as Pam said, he, is, he has completely fulfilled everything that was spoken of in the Old Testament. He is God's final word to you. Look to him. And then he gives those exhortations, press on. Do not grow weary. Do not neglect so great a salvation that you have. And that he goes back and forth, back and forth between the, exhortation, the exposition and the exhortation. But his main purpose is, I want to encourage you. And part of that encouragement involves some warnings to persevere in the faith. Do not give up. Main themes. This is not an exhaustive list, but main themes. Revelation, the revelation of God. God has spoken. And that's what we're going to look at next week in detail. The supremacy of Christ over all. He is, he is the fulfillment of everything God has said. He is better than the angels. He is better than Moses. He is better than Joshua. He is better than Aaron. Any, anyone you might have had high regard for in your Jewish upbringing as someone to emulate or to um, uh, respect, Jesus is better than that. He is absolutely better. And you know what's interesting in him doing this? And in, 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 in I'm just kind of preempting you a little bit for your homework. The author doesn't. When he starts in on them, he points them not, he doesn't have them look at themselves. He doesn't have them look at their circumstances. He has them look to Jesus and who he is and remember who he is. And he puts his focus there. They're focused there because he knows the only way you're going to be able to endure and to persevere is to stay focused on who he is and keep your eyes fixed on him. And that's as true for us today as it was for them then, regardless of our circumstances. Okay, third main theme, the work of Christ. The work of Christ is throughout here in that he was the once for all sacrifice. No longer are there priests standing day by day in the temple sacrificing goats and bulls over and over and spilling the blood. His blood was shed once for all. He sat down because at, the, in, at the right hand of God and completed his work. It was finished. Remember what he said on the cross? It is finished. It is very finished, which then leads to the next work of Christ, which is the priesthood of Jesus. Hebrews, more than any other book, emphasizes the priesthood or what I call the present work of Jesus. How often do we focus in on his past work that he shed his blood on the cross and bore our sin, made purification and propitiation for our sins, that we might have eternal life, and we lose sight of his present work. He is the merciful and faithful high priest, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And not only that, he is the one that because he lived flesh and blood, he understands our weaknesses, and he understands our struggles and our pain. So we have someone we can come because he sat down, because the veil is rent, because we can go directly into the presence of God, we can go to him, and he knows, and he understands. And that's a beautiful thing. Another main theme I've already said is that it's an exhortation for endurance. 
And then finally, I like this, that it expounds the finished word of God. What has been found in the old and the new, all of it is brought to completion of what God has spoken. A couple things I pulled out just to think about, just to encourage you to want to study this book and stick with it. These believers were very discouraged, and rightly so, and you can understand, because I think um, all of us wonder. We, we live where it's free. We're, we don't suffer that kind of persecution. No one's coming and seizing our possessions or um, throwing us in prison because we confess the name of Jesus Christ, but we can understand the fear of how, how would I endure that. And we can certainly empathize with those who have, would grow very, very discouraged, who would become kind of numb to what was happening to them or lose sight of who Jesus is or begin to question. I mean, when you think about Jews growing up very strongly in their Jewish faith and then accepting Christ, you can see under this where they might begin to question, is he really who he says he is? Have we believed something falsely? Do we need to rethink this? Because I don't know that I signed up for this kind of persecution. And I, I want to be sure that's who he is. So you see where they would be that and how, how they would question that, uh, question God even, as they would lose their perspective under, under these pressures. But what we see in this is how we, we, we so desperately need that community of faith you know, to be reminded of who we are and who Christ is and that we need encouragement. And Hebrews offers that encouragement. It really does. Um, I think we can also relate. It's an ancient book, but there, I think you'll find more present-day parallels than, than you would imagine. The cultural pressures against them, aren't we beginning to experience more cultural chaos and cultural pressures than, than we've known in our lifetimes? So that would be a similar thread there. Um, I've already told you about how the author focuses them totally on Jesus. But he also wants them to remember that we're never alone. We are never alone. We always have that high priest sitting at the right hand waiting for us to come and ask and to be with him. Something else about this book that's going to make it very relevant, especially in the first week out in your homework, we live in a very pluralistic age where people want to say all paths lead to God. All religions are valid. Jesus is just one other way. Y'all have heard that, haven't you? Hebrews is going to really tell you, no, that's not true. That he is completely unique. His supremacy, his superiority is greater than anything that these people might want to go back to, and it is greater than anything that any world religion or world philosophy or other self-proclaimed prophet will tell you because he is the only one who is truly God. He is the only one who could make purification for our sins, who could be that perfect sacrifice. And that, that to understand and be able to expound those truths in an articulate way is becoming more and more critical for us as believers in the world in which we live. We need to know these things. We need to be able to have a conversation when that comes up with people. Let me tell you why I don't agree with that statement that was just made. 
and these, it will equip you for this. Okay? Thoughts? Questions? Well, I, when we get to them, I didn't. There are five as we get to them. Okay? I, that's all I said was there were five. Okay. Jim, did you want to add anything? Okay. Okay. Let's take a short break. Okay. Uh, that'd be great. Your, where did you get your degree from? Um, where, was it Denver? Yeah, you might not want to go there, obviously, for reasons that Nancy just exposed us through. Yeah, yeah, for that as well. I wonder sometimes when Nancy says stuff, I'm like, what was that? Okay. Um, we are going to, in our second half, um, and again, both of these are critical. What I'm going to be doing second half is not just application, although I hope you get a strong applicational sense of what I teach. But it's not interpretation application as much as it is, and let me give you these words, as much as um, uh, kind of a more specific exegesis of the text, which is to draw the meaning out of the text. What does the text mean? What does the text mean? And then beyond that, it's how do we understand that meaning, which will be a great bridge to application, but how do we understand that meaning in light of the rest of Scripture? So it's not interpretation application, because Nancy will do a lot of application in the first half. She would do exegetical application. Here's what the text means. Here are some ways in which we can apply it. What I get to do is look at the overarching ideas of the book or the chapter and, um, and try to hold together a what would be considered instead of like exegetical work proper, which is within the confines of the text. I'm not as confined, so to speak, as Nancy is. And I can say, listen, let's look at that idea um, from the scriptures and see how it lines up well with what Paul says here or what Peter says here or what Isaiah says here. Um, and both are necessary, by the way, because as you are going to experience and as you have already experienced, that whenever we study the scriptures, we come to them with an understanding already about ideas. So if I were to say to you, tell me what God is like, you don't just think of a text. You think of a bunch of texts. He made the world, Genesis 1. He sent his son, Matthew 1. He did all these. He flooded the world, Genesis 6. Uh, called the people out of Egypt, Exodus 1. So you've got all these ideas about who God is. So when we even say things like warnings about falling away, you've already got an idea about that. Some people have beliefs, well, you can't fall away. Then what does this text mean? Well, but how does that fit with the other text? Right? So no matter what, we're going to have to um, pull together teachings from different ideas, uh, or from different texts, ideas from different texts. And what I'll be doing this second half, um, the majority of times, I'll be, I'll be uh, helping us understand how to think through some of these things, what I would argue theologically. And what I mean by that is systematically. So looking at the overarching umbrella of the Bible, and particularly the New Testament. So this morning, what I want to challenge us to think about as an overarching theme for the book of Hebrews is this phrase right here. 
you just can't go back. Have you ever experienced that feeling before? You just can't go back. You can't, um, you can't unlearn what you've already learned. Have you been there? I still remember looking at my oldest son who was watching a TV show um, in which, and I, I don't even remember what it was specifically, um, but it was, it was on ESPN and it was, there were some girls in it and they were dressed provocatively. Let's just put it that way, on ESPN. And I just remember looking at my 11-year-old son watching the television set going, Dad, something's happening inside of me. And I remember looking at him and going, oh, stinks. We can't go back. Right? You been there? You can't go back. Um, I, I remember um, getting married to a wonderful young lady, and I saw more desperation in her eyes, meaning, oh, stink, I can't go back. <laughs> I'm married to him. But you really can't undo that. I mean, we have kids, and we just can't go back. We can't undo it. The pain that they cause us, right? I mean, if it's, if it's just joy all the way, if it's just onward and upward, and this just gets easier, no, no problem. But have you ever bitten off more that you can chew and go, can I spit this out? And what's interesting is, is that this isn't a new phenomenon. People are try, have been trying to understand what is the world about? They're asking the deep metaphysical, who made this? Does, does God exist? And if he does exist, what is he like? What is, what is God? Why am I here? Where am I going? And those are questions that people have been asking. The Bible gives a very specific response. Who made us? Why are we here? Where are we going? The Bible is fundamentally interested in the most profound and deep questions that we have in our lives. The Bible gives a, a position. It, it argues from a position. This is who God is. This is who you are. This is why we're here. This is what's wrong with the world. This is how we need to get it right. This is where we're going, right? The Bible answers those questions. Okay? And as humans, we're seeking them. And the world is seeking them, no matter where I go in the world. I'm, I'll be leaving for Japan on Thursday. And when I arrive in Osaka, I promise you, everywhere I look, I will meet people that will look different than me, that are the exact same as me, they're wondering where we came from, where are we going? Patty, right, you're going to be with me. We're, this is exactly what we deal with in Osaka, same thing, okay? And what the book of Hebrews will give us, and this is why I love the book so much, is I appreciate its Old Testament background, but I love its emphasis. I mean, this was a big deal in this little section here this morning. What's it about? Jesus, and Jesus, and Jesus, and Jesus. And sometimes that's just the Sunday school answer that really is kind of like the cheating way of trying to answer a question, but it fits really, 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 really well with this book. And what it is teaching people is that you just cannot go back. You can't undo what has happened, okay? So I want you to just kind of hear the opening of the book. Next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to be dealing with chapter 1, but I want you to open up Hebrews chapter 1. I want you to look at how it begins. And I want to kind of play off the opening verse. And hopefully this will both inspire and even give some gravity to the commitment that you, I'm assuming, I don't know all of you really, I'm assuming the majority of us in this room, by far and away the majority of us, have given our lives over to Jesus. We have surrendered our lives to him. 
understanding and believing what the Bible says about him and trusting our peace with God through the work that he did on the cross. Okay, that's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, I trust my relationship with God as through the mediator, Jesus Christ. That's kind of a way to understand it, right? That's what it means to have faith in Jesus. God has peace with me. Why? Because of what Jesus Christ has done. How did you connect to that? By faith. Because I really believe Jesus was the answer to my sin problem. See how that works? Okay. So that is how we believe that fundamentally works. Okay. And I hope that, the, that, this, this, that this book gives you a, a greater assurance of your faith. A greater assurance of if Jesus Christ were to come back today, do you understand that it would be a good thing for you? Like, are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to, I mean, I'll miss you guys, but I'm not afraid to die. Like, if Jesus Christ, if you were to say Jesus Christ is coming back, the beautiful part is, like, I've got nothing outstanding to do. Right? I'm serious. I'd probably go, uh, I don't know what I would do. Truly. I mean, if they said, hey, this is what's happening, 2 o'clock this afternoon, I'm in good shape because I've already trusted my sin. Okay? And this book is going to give you that greater assurance. Okay? So one of the most important things for us to realize in this concept of you can't go back, not just us, not just married people, but now we're talking about what happens to people who grew up Hebrew. So along that idea, they would bring with it kind of their Old Testament understanding. And, and Nancy and I have been teaching on this, and Brenda have been teaching on this a lot, that through the Old Testament what we see are covenants, Okay, formal agreements that God has made with the people of the world, particularly the Jews of the world, through the father who? Abraham. And he made a covenant to Abraham. And he said, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And I'm going to make a, a nation out of you. And I'm going to give you a land. And I'm going to get, and he promises, right? Genesis 12. And then, so you have the Abraham covenant in Genesis 12. Then you have the Sinai covenant that we actually see, let's say, in Exodus 19. And this is how God relates to people, through covenants, through, uh, through, through these formal agreements. So here's what happens. And so at Sinai, they entered into agreements with God. Um, through Abraham, God entered into an agreement with them. Okay? And look at how the book of Hebrews begins. What does he say? In the past... Through many, and I'm just going to kind of give you my rough translation. In the past, God spoke. So past tense, God spoke. Which I, I just, I need to say this. You, you have no idea how important that is. Okay, I go off on this quite a bit when I'm preaching because I don't think we fundamentally, I, and I'm, maybe I'm just preaching to myself when I say this, I don't think I understand how critical it is that revelation comes to me. I think that I am so like smart on my own and discerning on my own that I really think I could figure a lot of life out. You, I, mean, I guarantee you, you think the same way. I promise you. You, you think just like I do. I can figure this out. I, can, I, can, I really can. I can figure this out. Just give me the problem. I can figure this out. Okay? So that's how we look at the world. And that's, by the way, how people without revelation from God, that's how they have to try to figure it out. Trial and error. Okay? This is why assurance of our situation with God, our assurance is based on what? 
Are you at peace with God? Yes. How do you know? Well, I was just kind of thinking, and I thought to myself, like, if there is a God, then he must trust my intentions. And I'm like, but how do you know that? Like, this is, what I, and I, this is how I knew I had to be a preacher, because I was doing this, like, in the fourth grade. Like, how do you know it's wrong to spit on other students? How do you know that's wrong? Well, because it just isn't that just wrong to you? I don't know, because she thinks it's okay. And so I don't know. Like, what basis are we going to, and I'm doing this, and I'm realizing, I don't know if I'm like everybody else. I was asking questions and trying. So what is your assurance based on? And think about it. What is the assurance based on? And a lot of people slash religions are based on kind of a common knowledge. Well, we've been kind of thinking about it. And doesn't it seem like you kind of get what you do? Like it comes back on you like boomerangs? Like haven't you noticed that? I, th- I think it's like karma. Haven't you noticed that though? And they're making observations about life. This is how paganism is. Like how do you know how the crops are going to grow? What do you mean how do we know? Well, there's probably a God out there. And, you know, if we do things, remember we did those things? And then like we got rain? Like I think that's how we should live. Right? This is paganism. They're left guessing how to please the God or gods. Right? And then there are those religions that are revelatory by nature, which says, hey, you couldn't figure this out. You, you need me to speak into. And we have one of those. We have one where God steps in and says, let me kind of clarify any confusion that you might have. Here is who I am. You see the difference? It's what I can actually appreciate and strongly disagree with, with my Muslim, those in the, in the, in the, within Islam, the one thing I appreciate is the fact that they have a revelatory message. God came and told Muhammad, hey, here's the way it is. Ah, I get that. I have a very similar idea, okay? God came and God spoke, okay? Um, so do you realize, like, how, how, uh, how graced you have been with this book? Right? So why do you have any assurance of your faith at all? And my answer is because of this amazing book that God has given me. Now, what is at the root of that? That he has revealed who he is. And that's what the book of Hebrews begins with. In the past, God spoke. We are not left trying to figure it out. He spoke. And much like I would tell my boys when they were little, hey, this isn't complicated. I say, and then I would point at my kids and they would go, we do. I had to teach them to say that. That didn't just come out of the womb. We do. That wasn't what happened, okay? Um, they were unintelligible for many, many months. I didn't understand what the problem was. But I taught them that it was going to be like this. I say, and they would say, we do. And then I would say things like, and what I say, they would go, mom says. And what mom and dad say, they would go, we do. And I would go, great, because that just explains how this relationship is going to work. It's not you say and I do. That's crazy. That's backwards. No, I say, and, and I would literally go like this, and they would go, we do. I know. I still say it to them, right? But now they're older, and they're like, we consider it now. And uh, God spoke. And it says there, he spoke through many and various ways. He spoke through prophets. He spoke, he, he spoke in the past to our fathers. And that's revelation. That's beautiful. It's rich. God gave us the law. As you know, Nancy and I aren't law haters by any stretch of the imagination. Sadly enough, there are far too many Christian people who belittle the law, 
who make it out nothing, out of a fear of legalism, which I don't think is what we're wrestling with in our culture. I really don't. I don't, I don't see a lot of legalism. Everybody pretends we're all legalists. I'd love to know, you show me one who lives legalistically. But we are far more licentious than we are pharisaical. Okay, I'm not saying we don't have tendencies towards both, but the majority of people I meet with are do what you want, there are no regulations, okay? And the law is a beautiful thing. The law is a wonderful thing. Paul said the law is a, is a gracious thing, okay? It is God's revelation about who he is. So in the past, God spoke to us through these prophets, and then he says this, but now, in these last days, which I just want to say this, um, the Bible actually speaks, we, we get kind of wrapped up because of where we live, um, both in the West as well as um, at this time period. We have a, a double whammy for us that this idea of last is one way of looking at how God speaks. And the Bible actually talks this in, the, in these terms, former and last. Former and last. So something seems to have happened that so fundamentally changed everything that we need to listen to it. Something has changed, and I would argue, and we just can't go back, that there was a way in which God used to do things, a way in which God used to act. Not that he's apologized and not that he is um, feeling bad about it, but in the end, it was never the ultimate intent of God to act in these ways. But if anything, as Nancy and I have been, we've been teaching on covenants and the books that we deal with, that these were a sign to something, and you, this is a word you need to hold on to for this book series, there is something that is greater. That's why I say, listen, you don't have to make fun of the law. I don't care. Talk about the law in the most glowing terms. Or just read Psalm 119. You don't read Psalm 119 and go, man, they hated the law. It's life. It's breath. It's meaning. It's, it's the greatest thing ever. Well, sure, if you're writing at that period, but they haven't met Jesus yet. Once they meet Jesus, they're going to go, wow, the law sure doesn't have the same kind of oomph that Jesus does, right? Why? And this is why it matters that your understanding of Jesus is not prophet, but God, right? It's not one who is sent, but one who is. There's a difference, okay? In the past, God spoke to us through prophets. God spoke to us in many in various ways. But now, in these last days, which means this, if they're the last days, and when, I, when you hear about last days, do you believe we're living in the last days? Well, yeah, I totally believe that. I believe we've actually been living in the last days. I don't know exactly when Jesus went back, but if it was 29 AD when he ascended back into the heavens. So roughly 2,000 years. We've been in the last days. Well, you know what I mean. I said, oh, listen, I, I think I know what you mean. You mean kind of more of the apocalypse. You mean more of the last, last days. But really, the Bible doesn't use the term last days in that sense. It has texts that talk about those times. But when the Bible describes in the last days and in the last times, uh, or time, it's actually describing that there is nothing new that can be added to this. Okay? Have you ever wondered, like, could we add new books to the Bible? And why don't we add new books to the Bible? Like, why don't we? You know that the Mormons don't have a closed Bible. They have an open one. New revelation. Well, you, by the way, when you're Joseph Smith and you encounter an angel, apparently, and he gives you new information, you have to have an open canon or an open book. You can't believe no new revelation and then get that. You have to have an open book, right? So guess what? It's still open. Okay? Now, by the way, what did Paul say? I love this line from the book of Galatians. 
if an angel should come down from heaven and preach a gospel other than the one that has been preached to you, let him be anathema, condemned, accursed, condemned, God damned. Okay, literally. Let him be that. Why? And here's what Paul is saying. It's done. The last is done. Okay? So just uh, this is why it becomes a real healthy way to understand what's going on in the Bible. The book of Hebrews says, like, what else could we say to you? Like, again, have you ever wondered, like, why don't we add new books? Like, Max Lucado's written a couple of good ones. He really has. I mean, I've really, I've been, I've been moved by those. Why don't we just put that in? And part of me would say, I mean, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. Can we add other ones? And I would say this. Before you just say, no, don't you dare, I would say, well, what more could they give me? Like, just tell me what a new book could give me that I would want to put it at the end of Revelation or even sneak it, you know, in between maybe Third uh, John and Jude or something. You know what I mean? Like, tell me what it's going to talk about. It's going to talk about, and then if you give me something other than Jesus, then I don't need it. I mean, I'll just keep it on my bookshelf. I got lots of books, but it doesn't fit in here. Like, what does it, how does it, how does it advance this like this? And the answer is there's nothing. Why? Because the Bible actually teaches we're done. See, this is why it is important for us in our own spiritual journey, and I hope that you've got the hand of someone else that you're leading in a spiritual pilgrimage. Why we tell them, since it's done, you just can't, you can't go back. How do you go back from, the, from done? How do you go back from having the pinnacle, having the, 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 the top, having the most, having the greatest? Where do you go from there? Right? You can't go back. In the past, God spoke to us through prophets and through many in various ways. But in these last days, which, again, what you need to hear is not end times. Woo! You, it, what you need to hear is now there is the fulfillment of all of this, and there is a new and final testament or covenant that is the crowning achievement of God's plan in the world. Okay, now, now, now do you realize, like a different Nancy, I like how she said it at the very beginning, you know, we hear about there are many ways, there are many ways to God. Do you realize how that just fundamentally rubs against this book? That there are many paths and many different ways, and you know, I've, I know people who believe in this, and I know people who believe in that, and I know people who've tried Christianity, and now they've gone back. Really? To what? What they go back to? Oh, just, you know, just kind of, I tried the church thing. Have you heard people talk like this? Maybe you felt it. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've actually kind of gone through this pilgrimage. Now, what's interesting is, like, the book of Hebrews is, is in a sense, kind of answering those questions. Because what it is describing is Hebrew people who have been given these wonderful covenants. And what was promised in these covenants? Just so we're clear. What was promised in these covenants was peace with God through God's primary covenantal faithfulness to them and them responding back in faith. Paul doesn't go, oh yeah, that faith thing, that's new. Yeah, Abraham didn't have any faith. Hebrews 11 doesn't go, oh yeah, faith is a new thing. That's a New Testament idea. In the past, people were saved by works, but in the New Testament, we're saved by grace. Have you heard, listen, have you heard 
Oh, how do I say this nicely? I'll just pretend I'm Ryan Vincent. Have you heard stupid people say that before? Right? Have you heard people not, that, that's, by the way, not true. What does Paul say? Abraham was saved by faith. It's always been faith. Abraham, that's Paul's argument. It's always been faith. God hasn't changed a thing. That's Hebrews 11. This is, it's always been faith. It's always been faith. So they believe that we have peace with God through his covenantal promise, through the sacrificial system, and then our obedience to that covenant. They're right. But Jesus, when I, this is why I, I need to be careful about how I, he didn't change that like, okay, that was dumb. He changed it like that was temporary, right? It, it's, it's kind of like I had older sisters growing up, and so I don't remember babysitters. I just remember older sisters. And when you have older sisters that are watching you, um, you're trying to listen to them, and you're trying to obey them because you know that mom and dad are really the authority, but they're still your sister. And so I also have no problem, this might surprise you, I have no problem arguing with Rhonda. I have no problem. You're not my mom, you know. I know, but mom has sent me here. Yeah, but I don't think she would. I think mom would. And we get into this argument, right? And then mom comes home, and it's like, okay, I'm so glad you're back because Rhonda and my parents were really, really big on supporting every teacher in my life and every authority that was put over me. My parents were just like, come down hard on Jim. I thought, why are you doing this? Because they're trying to teach me that they have representatives that come in who are actual representatives from them so they carry that authority, right? And that's what's happening here. Jesus doesn't change it. Jesus comes in, and this is how Paul says it. Jesus walks in and says to the babysitter, you can go home now. That's the law. You can go home now. Like, you, you served your purpose. I'm glad, you, glad you're here. You were helpful. You're just not. And why can Jesus, I get goosebumps thinking about this. Why can Jesus say that? Because he's who? He's God. He's God. And nobody has any problem with God walking in and going, oh, yeah, okay, um, law, you can go home now. Right? You've served your purpose. Paul says that the law was given to us as a school teacher to teach us. But it's not the parent. It, it's, it's the difference between um, Sarah and, um, why can I not remember, Hagar. Paul says in Galatians, Hagar is the slave woman, and that's kind of like the old system. But, but, but Jesus and children, by that's, that's Sarah. That's the, the child of promise. That's what he says. So do you realize, like, where are you going to go? Now, why does that matter so much? Because this is what one of my biggest complaints about the teaching of the book of Hebrews is that we, 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 we lazily put ourselves in the audience's place, and we misunderstand what's going on. This happens in this book. It happens in every book, but it happens in this book more than anything. For example, um, we're dealing with some fun texts on Sunday morning coming up. Ryan and I had a quick meeting today about uh, the way that when I get back from Japan, I want to kind of change the distribution of Matthew 18. And so we were talking about it. And do you know the story of the prodigal, which is not found in Matthew? There's a kind of a side uh, kind of a uh, kind of a detailed explanation of it from a different perspective in Matthew 18, the story of the prodigal, Luke 15. You know the story of the prodigal, right? And when, if, I, if, if a preacher were to preach to you the story of the prodigal, um, have you ever noticed that the majority of times the prodigal are lost people? Right? They are. They're the lost. Do, do you understand what you are fundamentally missing when you just go, 
lost people? What are you missing? It's not lost people. It's lost what? It's lost sons. You know, there's a difference, right? Jesus isn't talking about just the world that is lost. Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and he is saying, you have brothers who have wandered. Are you caring for them? And we just totally gloss over that. Now, by the way, there's implication for all the lost. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to bypass anything. But the primary teaching are those within the Jewish faith that are lost. And this is how God cares. That's the original context. And we want to just move everything to modern-day situations. Okay? So why is this so critical? And what you'll, what you'll see is how the book of Hebrews is constructed will show you something that is really obvious. So the Hebrew people, um, their faith, based upon the instructions that they had in their upbringing, okay, before Jesus, was that they had peace with God through this covenant and through the sacrifice, okay, the whole sacrificial system. That's where the peace was. God told them to give sacrifices. They gave sacrifices, so now I'm good with God, okay? That's what they believed. Now, all of a sudden, someone between them growing up and the writing of this book, something has changed. And what has changed? Now, all of a sudden, they have Jesus. They have Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Again, we've already said it. What did Jesus do? He fulfilled it all. He told the babysitter to go home. Okay? So now, all of a sudden, we find out that these things have purpose but the crowning achievement is in Christ, okay? So this is why um, spending a few moments and kind of wrestling with the thought and kind of not getting your underwear all bunched up on the idea of, is this written only to you and primarily to you and it's all about you? I mean, our, our, the audience that I deal with, um, including myself, is like, well, it's got to be about me. If it's not about me, then what's the point? If I can't have it about me? And I meet people all the time that just get mad. And I'm like, really, it's... First of all, it's about God. Second of all, it was written to them, and it is now given to us by the Holy Spirit. So I'm grateful for where I fit in, but I'm not the center of the universe. Never have been, never will be. Okay? So this is why it becomes critical. In order for us to understand it, it's Hebrew Christians who have Jesus who are now faced with what specific temptation? And here's, Nancy described it. Um, they're, they're literally talking about Jesus is better than. Jesus is greater than. Greater than what? Here's a lazy thought. Greater than everything? Okay, okay. I, I agree with you. That's really not what the book says. The book doesn't go, he's better than Alexis. He's better than an OSU championship. Although he is. That's not what the book says. Right? He might say that to us. He might say, it's better than the person that you want to win the election. Jesus is better than that. Sure, but that's not what he's saying here. Jesus is better than what? And the book of Hebrews has a very specific better than. And what is he better than? Angels, the law, the, the tabernacle, um, Moses, the high priest, Melchizedek. I mean, so what are those things that he's describing better than? This is why it becomes critical is because these Hebrew Christians who are now having some serious doubts about Jesus, where do they fall away to? Where do you fall back Two. See, that matters a lot. And the hint from what he is comparing it to, 
for example, if I said, let's say, I said, let's say your problem was OSU, okay, and that was your problem. And I just kept saying, hey, listen, that's why you should never sing a song that talks about proud and immortal, we herald your fame. Because you know Jesus is better than OSU. And you do know that, like, OSU is kind of fickle because sometimes they have good teams and sometimes they have bad teams. And I, I, I listed all of these things. And I said, therefore, I know that you come from OSU, and I know that it had its purpose, but you, you don't need to go back. Because let me tell you how much Jesus is better than OSU. What am I afraid you're going back to? OSU. That's kind of where you're going back to. You're finding your meaning and identity and purpose and joy, right? This is what happens in any of our idols. And, what, and if I were to point out, it's like I know where you're sliding back to. You're sliding back to your idols. So in this book, what we actually have is they're sliding back into, where are they going? Back to Israel. Back to the covenants. Back to the promises. Back to the old system. Okay? Because here's what happens. I'm a Jew. I'm practicing my life. This is why I believe that the persecution is a little more... I do believe it's both, but I believe it's predominantly Jewish, okay? Because the temptation of the book is that they're sliding back into Judaism. If the persecution is coming from outside, and it doesn't matter if they're Jewish or Christian, i.e. Claudius's persecution in 46, then, then they can't go back into Judaism. They're going to get nailed there too, right? So the Jesus is better than this. It kind of, kind of doesn't have the same kind of weight. Does that make sense? So I do believe there's both, Okay? Um, but I think it's predominantly, they're going, okay, wait a second here. Like, I stepped out, and I kind of, uh, I realized that the Old Testament and the sacrificial system and all of those things, that that was the way, but now I've got this new way, and I keep getting my, my hands slapped. I keep getting my knees knocked out from underneath me. Like, I'm going through persecution. They're taking my stuff. They're, um, he says in, in the book that he, they haven't quite given their lives, but that's the next thing to go. And they're going, so if I just do this, can I be okay? Like, can I just, can I undo what I did and just go back, okay? And what does he say? Or she, in Nancy's case, because she went to Denver. So uh, I don't think it's Priscilla. Adolf von Harnack, the great German theologian, was the first one to, to believe that Priscilla was the one that wrote it, but he didn't even believe in Jesus. So um, <laughs> complicated story. Uh, when you deal with this, when they're going, you can't go back, you, or they want to go back, they want to go, what, what do they want to do? They, wanna, they still want to have peace with God. They're not, giving, they're not going back to atheism. This is the problem. In our world, if we go back, what do we usually go back to? Like, if we were to convert people, where do we go to? Like, we go to kind of more of a, I don't believe in godness, right? That's kind of where we would go back. But that's not where they would go back. Why do you think he keeps exposing, in a, in a rather critical way, you're really going to go back to Moses? Like, you're really going to go back to the sacrificial system? Like, you're really going to go back to a tabernacle. Like, you're really going to go back to a high priest now that you've had Jesus. You're really going to try that now. And what does he keep saying? All of these things are done. They're, in, in essence, they're dead. Why? Because the son has died. See? So one of the most critical things that as you're studying this, this book, and it'll have its very rich application, by the way, because... I have to ask, what would I fall back to? Let me deal with a little bit of some quick application. So these people are going from Hebrew to Christian 
followers of Christ. And then they're going, can we still have peace with God by stepping back into the Hebrew world, into the Israel, Israel's world? And the Hebrew writer is going, there's nothing there anymore. I'm sorry, you can't go back. You can't undo that God... It, it's, think, one of, the, one of the most... Ameri- I, I thought they would talk about this more in this book, but they, the Hebrew writer doesn't. Um, I, I thought about this. My first title that I had working for this lecture was this. You just you can't go back to Egypt. Remember the Israelites? We want to go back to Egypt. Man, we had a good there, right? Now, not only was that just dumb, but it was just like, well, you can't do that. Like, you can't, God, God has liberated you. Like, do you realize, why would you go back to slavery? Why would you go back to Egypt? Well, because now that we think about it, I just think it would be better. How could you think that? Right? This, by the way, is an Old Testament theme. Why would you go back to slavery? It's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Why would you go back to slavery? Really? I thought you said the law was good. Oh, listen, I, I'm, it really is. But compared to Jesus, it's slavery. It's the compared to Jesus piece that matters the most. Compared to Jesus, it's slavery. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. Okay? Compared to Jesus, it is slavery. So where do we go to? And, and let's just be honest, because I think this is one of those great applicational moments. So how do the people that you know, how do they find... If they do believe at some level there's a God, what does the general person in your life and in my life, where do they find peace with him? Do you, do you want to share some personal testimony about the people that you know that have peace with God, how they basically consider themselves to be at peace with God, to live in peace with God, to not necessarily be overly concerned about the judgment? I don't know what assurance they have. and that's, We'll talk about that here in a moment, but... How do the people that you know, the people that you love, who don't follow Jesus Christ, they, they, by the way, they may have said something in the past at camp, okay? Because we all know to trust the statements of a 12-year-old and never hold them accountable to what they say as a great form of spiritual development. Um, doesn't even make sense to me now that I say it out loud. But anyway, when you look at what is going on and what is happening here, um, where are people that you know that are finding peace with God? What's their plan? I love asking that question. I love saying, so what's your plan when you meet him? I love asking that question because people are like, I have to have a plan. Well, yeah, like truly, I think you're going to meet somebody. So if you look at me and go, I don't think I'm going to ever meet anybody. Oh, okay. Then you're living totally fine within that system because it doesn't look like you care how you live your life. Like obviously you don't think you're going to meet the same one that I think I'm going to meet by the way that you live your life and the way I live mine. Okay? So... Most people, what is their? What do you think their plan might be? Yeah. Their good deeds. Oh, yeah. Which is fascinating to me because it actually is legalism. Right? They just get to define. It's legalism as defined by them. Those people that have, like, no rules in their lives but have that major rule are some of the most devout legalists. It's why you get incredible hypocrisy, right, within the non-believing community, right? How dare you judge me? Well, are you judging me for judging you? Yes, because <laughs> judging's the worst thing. How dare you judge me? Okay. Pot, kettle, hello, <laughs> right? Think about it. So what's your plan? My plan is that I'm going to be a good person. Based on what? Based on my head. And my friends and Facebook? Really? Like, that's your plan. Listen, this is why they don't have assurance. This is why when I talk to my Muslim roommate at home, 
Not my wife, by the way. But my Muslim roommate at home. So what's your plan? Well, my plan is I'm just going to do a lot of good things, more good things than bad. Okay. So you don't even know if you're going to make it. No. He'll say things like, I have to depend upon Allah's mercy. Allah the merciful. That's what he calls them. Allah, and so he believes in the mercy of Allah. A lot of Christians don't know that. But Islam believes in the mercy of Allah. How do you know, Taysir? I don't. Oh, no wonder you're afraid. No wonder when that earthquake happened, I'm in the living room going, this is cool. <laughs> and Taysir is running down the stairs, we're all going to die. Right? You know? I thought that was fascinating. So he doesn't know. He's waiting for Allah to come. And by the way, he, Muhammad will come and Jesus will come. By the way, he talks about, I believe in Jesus will come. I said, I know, but here's your problem, Taysir. When Jesus comes, he's going to throw you into hell. Because you don't know the truth about him. You believe a lie about him. If I say Muhammad is a baker at the Panera, and that's what I'm trusting, you would go, well, Jim, that's wrong. Muhammad is such. By the way, there might actually be a Muhammad doing the baking at Panera, but I mean the, the Muhammad, right? And I said, I'm not trying to rip on him, but he is a man who had a false message. I don't know if he actually saw like an angel, demonic. I, I don't know where that ultimately, I don't know. I just know that it's not the truth. I believe it's not the truth. Why? Well, and I, we can give you a bunch of different answers, but what's your plan? His plan is that. By the way, it's what the majority of people is. I'm like, it's my sister-in-law's plan. And hers involves, by the way, church. Okay? She goes to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, um, doesn't understand what the beep they're doing there. Her words, not mine. But in the end, I'm kind of a good person. And she is. She's a great person. She, is, she really is. I love being with her. She has, but when I ask her what her plan is, literally her plan is, I'm going to be a good person. And by the way, I would even argue that might be some of your plan. And I love the fact that the book of Hebrews hopefully will kick it out of you. It's kicked it out of me. Because that's a really dumb plan. There's nothing real. Yeah. 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 I would even argue, though, I mean, I, here's what I've never done, is I've never said, I think I'm going to give up on Jesus and go back to the synagogue. Like, I've never done that. Like, I've never said, I'm going to give up on Jesus. I'm going to go back to sacrificing goats. I don't have that in my past, right? So my go back truly is, I guess, kind of being a good person, right? So here, here's why I say this. So now when you're talking to people who are not living faithfully to who Jesus Christ is, now you should critique them, okay, lovingly, because that's not a, it's not a negative word, to critique them by their now newfound returned, found foolishness, right? This is what we get to critique it with. Like, why would you go back to trying to please God through your own goodness? 
Like, why would you do that? Like, why would you give up on Jesus? And what I, what I, here's what's really sad, is what most people accepted when they accepted Jesus was not like his sacrifice, but through their conversion, it's amazing the number of college students I've talked to, and they don't know what they accepted. And when I ask them, so what, when you came to, I don't know now, actually. I think it was kind of like Jesus died for me, blah, blah, blah. Don't know what, how that fits into this, but I need to try to be a good person. Right? That's what I get a lot of, actually. A lot of what we're convincing people is say this prayer and try to be a good person. Right? Get wet and try to be a good person. And we haven't done a good job explaining what conversion and what commitment to Jesus Christ is in the beginning. This is where many of us have failed in our homes. It's about learning these rules so that we can listen to our moms, like we should listen to God, instead of trusting Jesus for our peace with him. Right? So a lot of people are going, I I was trying to be a good person, and then I went to church and I I tried to be a good person. I can do this. This is why when people talk about, like, I don't need to be a part of a church or I don't need to be part of a fellowship, they're just saying, I mean, it really didn't change. I started going to church. It really didn't change any aspect of my life. I was trying to be a good person there. I'm trying to be a good person at church. It doesn't matter where I try to be a good person. They don't understand. We are the family of God, the household of faith. That's what they don't understand, right? So they haven't really got who Jesus Christ is. They're still basing all of their salvation on an assurance of their own good works, and it leaves them guessing. I'm kind of glad it does. I really do. Like, I, I pray all the time that Taysir is profoundly worried. And then he gets to look at me and go, why are you, why are you not afraid? <laughs> and I'm just like, because I know Jesus. Well, I know him too. No, but you know lies about him. You know things that aren't true about him. I know the truth. Show me where they say that. And I literally go to the Bible. Everything from where Jesus says I can eat bacon, Matthew 7, to what Jesus says about himself, to what, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, let me show you what Jesus says. Okay. So this becomes the fundamental plan that the Hebrew writer is saying. You cannot go back. It's interesting, and um, as I close, it's interesting that I just, I decided to pick up kind of the first word out of every chapter, and in the Greek, it's not quite the first word, because sometimes in the Greek, they'll have it as the second or the third word, but it's the one carrying the force. And I want you to listen to how this book presents itself, and I'll go through the different chapters Chapter 2, therefore. Chapter 3, therefore. Chapter 4, therefore. Chapter 5, for. And then he gives a case. Chapter 6, therefore. Chapter 7, for. Chapter 8, now. And it gives a presented case. Chapter 9, now. Chapter 10, for. Chapter uh, 11, now. And it uses it with a very forceful, kind of more of a but. Chapter 12, therefore. Chapter 13, Let us remain, all in one word. Let us. You see what he's doing? This is who Jesus Christ is. Therefore, 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 for support. Now, implication. Now, implication. Therefore, therefore. Do you just get the kind of the weight of the book? Sometimes one of the coolest things to do, and it works more with letters. This doesn't really work with gospels, right? Um, the, the guys that developed it, it wasn't by God, the guys that developed verse and chapter divisions kind of thought, where are we getting into a new idea, roughly, a new idea? And I just, I just thought, I'm going to go back and trace what he is doing, and over and over and over again, it is just, Jesus is the greatest. Therefore what? Okay, and he describes it. 
Now, and he gives an example, now we should actually go and do. This whole book just dismantles these particular people's question. So if I choose because I'm legitimately facing a difficult experience, my life is threatened, my, wife life, my wife's life is threatened, my children's lives are threatened, my, um, the ease of my life, and not just in a modern-day ease, but a very difficult, I mean, if I just step back, can I find peace with God again? And what does he say? There is no peace with God without Christ. See, that's what Nancy meant when she said, there's not many ways. There's only one way. And now that you've experienced it, so here's, here are my two final thoughts for you. So when I say to you, so now that you have experienced life with Jesus, I, I'm totally okay with you asking the question, I don't know if I've done that. I, I don't want to cast doubt or fear upon anybody's faith. I never have that desire. I, I'm not, when I do, it's like when I do premarital counseling. I never try to, I'm going to see if I can talk you out of getting married. No, I don't, that's not my goal. But I do want you to know the truth about marriage, and I'm going to tell you the truth about how complicated it is, okay? My wife married great, and she says it's hard, okay? And so I want them to realize the complexity of that. And the Bible actually says to us things, because this matters. Like, I want you to have this. But not based upon, I mean, I just know a lot of religious teachers that sound more like your mom. You're the cutest, most special person in the world, and you know that, right? Yes, mom. I just wish I could get a girl other than you to love me. You're the best at you're the best at first base. You know you're the best. Yeah, but I wish I could find someone other than you to kind of let me play first base. Right? And this is what we do with a lot of our foolish encouragements. And again, I don't care about baseball and dating. I care about salvation. That's my number one issue in life. And I know a lot of people that give really weak assurances. But the Bible says, one of my favorite texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, says this. Therefore, examine yourselves so that you might know whether or not you are in the faith. Two things about that. Number one, it says you need to examine it. Is Paul trying to cast doubt? No. He's saying, do you want to know if you're saved? Then do the hard work. Think through where your salvation comes from so that you might have the same hope that I have, the same confidence that I have, the same assurance that I have. And so he describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 what that looks like. And by the way, it seems like he assumes that they're going to go, I really am saved. That's awesome. How many of you would love to know that you are at peace with God? Would you not want to know that? then do the hard, heavy lifting of knowing how to get there and being confident that you did it. And I would even challenge you, it's for another message, don't overthink everything. Truly. I mean, we, we live in a day and an age where skepticism is run, and I'm, I'm the master of this, that it gets run amok, and I'm beginning to realize that you can't, that sometimes i got to grow up and not be the two-year-old. Why? 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 At some point in time, the answer has been settled. Because right? But wouldn't you like to know this? What the book of Hebrews says is that you can know this. So you, you really do need to examine your faith during this class. You need to ask, am I truly finding my peace with God through Jesus Christ? And live in the wonderful confidence 
of that? Or you need to find peace with God. You need to hear just how Jesus is better um, than your crazy little system of trying to be a good person and believing that you just doing your best, which I know your parents said was enough. When it comes to God, you know what he says, right? Your best is not good enough. And what fills in the gap when Jim Johnson's best is not good enough, you know what fills in the gap? His love for me. And he says, listen, you don't even have to try to be, you don't have to be good enough for me to die for you. I did that before. Before you ever, I had this plan before any of you even knew you had a problem. Do you understand how critical that is? That Jesus is not a plan B. Going back to what we just described, Jesus was always plan A. There were just some steps to get there. Do you have that assurance? Would that be one of my questions? If not, I strongly recommend, like, for just your own sanity and for you to, like, enjoy worship again and for you to enjoy Bible study again, take a look at who Jesus Christ is. Because when you have um, tasted him, this is language from the book of Hebrews, when you have tasted him, when you have experienced him fully, it's not just, oh, you can't go back. It's, why would I go anywhere? Let's pray. So God, I thank you for Jesus and for just how essentially and intrinsically he is the master and the end of all things. That God, um, your son, um, the perfect image of you, the radiance of your glory is who we have as our savior. That we have no high priest or need of one now. That we have no temple um, or need of one now. That, God, there is no sacrifice or need of one now because of Jesus. May we find peace there, hope there, purpose there, and assurance only there. By your glory, for your grace, we give you thanks. Amen.